All right, we're continuing our uh, journey this, uh, this morning through what the church is called to be. And last week we looked at how Jesus is within the Trinity uniquely missional and how he comes and he serves to draw us to God the Father. He comes to retrieve that which was broken and lost and uh, he covers the entire distance that spans that, was, that separated us from God. And like we said last week, the amount by which that you think that you covered any amount of that distance is the amount at which you um, devalue Christ's work, right? So whatever you thought you were responsible for, you will celebrate that in true idolatrous fashion uh, instead of celebrating the fullness of what Christ has done for you. And so this morning, what we're looking at is how the church is called to be missional. Now, some of you at this point in the service may be going, uh-oh, we knew that this guy was a chaplain at the rescue mission and we knew that he loved broken and homeless people and now he's got us singing songs about it and the, the assurance of pardon sounded incredibly works-based and I am concerned right now. And you shouldn't be entirely. Um, if you notice in the assurance of pardon, what came first? Somebody help me out. I'm sure you were here. I'm sure you were paying attention. What was first? Who laid their life down first? You? No, Christ did. And in Christ laying down his life, he expected that there would be a result in your life. That you would then do, go and do what he did. Now, is he saying that you now go be saviors for those around you? Is that what that means, to lay your life down? No, not at all. In fact, we know that's not at all what John's talking about. What he's saying is that you should love in both word and in deed as a result of what Christ has done for you. And in so doing, you will find assurance as you go before the Lord your God. What a wonderful thing that he's made it so incredibly and impressively clear to us. Now, would that we do it, right? And so we have all these opportunities. And I know some of you are probably slightly concerned because straight away the, it's, the title of the sermon is the church is called to be missional. And does that mean that I'm going to start just where is the next 35 or so minutes going to be just one of the longest sermon beatings that you've ever taken in your lives? And I want to assure you, no, it's not. In fact, my prayer is that it would be phenomenally scriptural and that you would actually be freed from some of the neurotic views of being missional. So straight away, I want to ask you the question, when you hear the word missional, what do you think? What is it that comes immediately to your mind? Is it the distortion that to be missional means that you've got to grab a bullhorn and go be mean to gay people? Do you think that's being missional? I'm here to tell you that that's not at all being missional. Do you think that it means that you've got to go brave the cold and pass out tracks to people who don't want to have any sort of relationship with you at all and that you really don't want to have a relationship with because you're just passing the track out and turning your head away and not learning who these people are and caring anything about their story? Is that what you think when you hear the word missional? Do you hear kind of the, maybe, maybe you hear the colonialized version of missional. That to be missional means you go and teach those poor people who don't understand what it means to be civilized, how to be civilized. That's not it either. No, missional is a mindset. 
And maybe sometimes you hear it narrowly. Maybe you hear it in the individualistic terms. I mean, we're, we're Americans after all, right? I mean, we're, we're, we're good Western cultured folk and we always hear everything in terms of individualistic terms. And so when we hear missional, we, we bear the whole weight of that thinking that we in and of ourselves, by ourselves have to go and do it all, which is why we don't do it at all. Is that what missional means? Is just a call to you, the individual? Or is it a challenge to the corporate church as a whole to take and use all of her gifts for the glory of God and the love of our neighbor? I would posit and argue that the term missional is actually tied deeply to our sanctification. And my hope is that what you saw in that passage from 1 John is that your, your assurance is tied to it, your um, ability to have any sort of joy before the Lord your God and the throne of grace is tied to it, um, that your ability to take any sort of joy and see where God is at work is deeply tied to what you believe about your call to be missional and the using of your gifts in the context of the corporate church to be missional. So this is, a, this is a critical subject and it is maybe a, potentially a watershed sermon for our church in that regard. Because if we continue with the distortion, and I'm not saying you have distorted views of it at current, I'm fairly new here after all, um, but if we do have distortions and we continue in the distortion, we're just gonna grow in our neurosis and continue to get it wrong and it'll continue to be, instead of a source of joy for us and a, joy, and a source of deepening of our community, it will be a dividing point. And I don't want it to be. And so let me, let me give a quote that I don't really want to give because of the pressure it now puts on me. Um, Christopher J.H. Wright in his book, The Mission of God's People, Biblical Theology of the Church's Mission, says this, and this, actually I preached this the very first time I ever came here, Ephesians 4, 11 through 16. People don't go to church on Sundays to support their pastor in his ministry. Did you hear what I just said? This is, not, this is not the Cameron Barm show. This is not the move Cameron up the corporate church ladder show. This is not help Cameron get his own website, www.camerondbarhamministries.com, where you can access all that I ever have to say, do, and see a really cool picture of me and my family. It's not that. This is not the purpose of this church. It is not to do anything to build me up at all. It is to actually build you up. And listen to the rest of what he says. He says, no, the pastor goes to church on Sunday to support the people in their ministry. Man, how things would change if we believe that. Throughout the church, I don't care what denomination you are. If we really truly came to believe what Ephesians 4, 11 through 16 actually teaches, we would, with great power in the spirit, do some phenomenal things. We do anyway because God will not be mocked, but I think that we could do even more. And I know it's a challenge because, again, I'm on a stage, right? That immediately, straight away, gives you some indication that I'm better than you because I got the microphone, right? And I got the stage and we can't just willy-nilly let just anybody get up and share their thoughts, right? We gotta have decency and order here. But it's, it's, and I know that a lot of things contribute because you hear from me the most that really it becomes more and more about me. And I want to deconstruct that as much as humanly possible. I want you to know that what we do here on Sunday, really, it's about you. It's not about me at all. In fact, I'm getting to do the thing that I'm called to do, hopefully so that you get to do the thing that you're called to do, right? So, we're going to see how this plays out in the life of the Thessalonian church. We're going to read chapter 1 and walk through 
what Paul is saying to them. And I think the Thessalonian church is a wonderful example to us at Christ Community of what we should look like where we are. Now, just to give you a little bit of background, um, remember that the, Thess- the Thessalonian church was acknowledged for its sacrificial giving. Thessalonica is in Macedonia and was one of the three churches that Paul was speaking of when we talked about the church's call to be generous in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Remember, they gave till it hurt and it hurt. They gave of all that they had. They, in fact, they begged Paul, I know we have so little, but let us participate in the work that the Lord is doing in the Jerusalem saints. Please let us have an opportunity to see the gospel go forward. How many of you are begging to give? I can tell you, none of you so far have like said, please, Cameron, take all, the, all this money and use it for the work of the Lord. Or, or, and especially the fact that our missionaries, we did not give what we needed to and what we promised to give last year. And I'm not beating you up on this. I'm just stating it as fact. We, we failed in one sense, but we used some reserves to make sure that those missionaries wouldn't suffer, suffer one iota. And we need to, as, as Missions Month is coming up in February, you're going to get to hear from a lot of other voices. You don't get to hear my voice at all in the month of February, as it turns out. And so uh, we're going to get to hear from some other voices who are serving. And we want to make sure that we are thinking through what it means to truly be generous and have the opportunity to participate in the gospel going forward other places. So the Thessalonian church was known for that. And also later on in the book, Paul um, says very specifically to them that they are to live peaceable lives. This is in chapter four, verses nine through 12, to live peaceable lives, working with their hands and loving all those around them in their local contexts. So he's saying straight away to them that their call to be missional is not that all of them are to get up and go and move to Uganda or Honduras or some other place. No, he says, right where you are, live out the power and the truth of the gospel in such a way that it changes things. And we're going to see how them doing that has had a significant impact. Would that someone could write 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 as a letter to us. Would that we could be accused of what the Thessalonian church is about to be accused of. Let's dig into the text. Verses one through three. Hear God's word this morning. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. Let me pause right there. Those were the three folks who were primarily responsible for planting the church. Um, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, why do you think he felt the need to get so specific in describing to whom he was talking. Why is this a valuable thing for us, the church, to remember? Because it was God who was generous first to us. It was Christ who was missional first to us before we were ever a known entity at all. And church, listen, it is incredibly important that we never forget these things, which is why we are so adamant about being Trinitarian in our worship, making sure that it's Father, Son, and Spirit. And guess who's gonna show up later on in the text? As he always does, the Holy Spirit. Paul never seems to leave him out like we do. But he starts straight away with God, who sent the son and the son who came to retrieve that was lost. So he's making sure they understand exactly who they are, the ecclesia in God, the father, and in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he summarizes the gospel in this beautiful way. He says, grace to you and peace. 
What a brilliant summary of the gospel. Would that we would have both, right? Would that we would have both grace and peace, and that's, that would, what a rich blessing to be given. And so Paul is, is, is just very, very much saying this is, this is what it's all about. When he says grace and peace to you, that's really the whole shebang, isn't it? And so he is opening this letter in a very beautiful way, and those, those are meaningful things. He says, we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. I love that they know there's someone who's praying for them. That they know that there's someone who is constantly speaking about who they are and making sure that their name is constantly coming up before the throne of God. Now my question for you is, um, is there anyone in which you're praying for in this way? Our missionaries, we want to make sure that we are constantly bathing our missionaries in prayer. Do you think it's easy to be a missionary in India? Was India just open arms, can't wait to receive Christians? The Hindus, they love Christians because it's all polytheistic, relativistic, anything goes. If you know anything about India, a number of people have lost their lives by fire. In fact, I think David Brainerd was one who lost his life. Where did he lose his life, Sam? Tuberculosis. North New England. Who was it that was burned to death in India? Missionary. Yes. Okay. I knew Sam would know, and that's why you can always phone a friend <laughs> mid-sermon. It's good to have friends, you know. Um, but there is a number of folks who have lost their lives seeking to bring the gospel to India. Um, the India, India is not necessarily an open door. And I think that it's probably starting to close a little bit in some areas. And so we want to make sure that we're praying for our missionaries who are there and missionaries who are all over the world and China. Guess what today is? Anybody know what today is? It's the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. Would that the persecuted church knew that we were praying for them. A good friend of mine was a photographer for International Justice Mission. And he was in Palestine in one of the, this has been some years ago, during one of the flare-ups between the Israelis and the Palestinians. And there's a group of people who are caught in the middle. They're Palestinian Christians. Nobody, you could not have more enemies than the Palestinian Christians do. You can't. You could not live in a more just desolate area where everybody hates you. And one of them said to him, that he said, do the Christians in America even know we exist? And he said, sadly, I don't, I don't know that they do. And he said, would you do me a favor and let them know so they can be praying for us? Because that would mean a lot to us. Notice what he didn't ask for. He didn't ask for us to send them any money. He didn't ask for us to send them Bibles. He didn't ask for us to send them missionaries. He just said, would you, would you please tell them to pray for us because we need it. And he also made this indictment. He said, you know what's funny about the American Christians is they're kind of like chocolate. He said, what are you talking about? He said, they melt when it gets hot. So today is that unique day in which we could um, serve the church well by taking a moment at some point today um, in your Lord's Day preparation and taking time to pray for the persecuted church. Maybe you know somebody who's in a difficult area. Maybe you know of some missionaries, but just to cry out to the Lord on their behalf because they're going through some things right now that we, don't, we can't even begin to comprehend. Would that we would know as a church that there are people praying for us. Isn't that a very comforting thing to know that people care about what goes on in our midst, right? And so I'm sure that there are a number of people who are praying for us, and I would hope that we would let each other know that we're praying for each other. 
And then he goes on, he says, and the reason that we pray for you is remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, for those of you who um, recognize, there was the holy trinity of Christian virtues, faith, hope, and love. But notice in this particular case, and you'll miss this a little bit because in the Greek it's more, more clearly seen, the focus of the passage is not those three words, it's the result of those three words. The way that it's actually used in the Greek is emphasizing the work, the labor, and the steadfastness that results from faith, love, and hope. So what Paul is saying is that these things that you have in Christ uniquely are producing a result in you. And it is a beautiful thing for, to witness. This is what he's excited about is that there is actually something evident, tangible, and visible within the Thessalonian church. That their faith, hope, and love is not just some abstraction of ideas that we spend countless hours and Bible studies talking about but never actually seeing come to fruition. There is a result and what's interesting is within the Jewish mind or the Greek mind, to say work of faith is actually to say that you are evidencing your love for your marginalized neighbor. And who is our marginalized neighbor? There are many. How you know you have a marginalized neighbor is if that person is not flourishing in the gospel for whatever reason it may be. I'll give you a for instance. When I was on staff at a mission church, um, in Pleasant Hill, uh, Strong Tower Fellowship. It was a historic African-American neighborhood. And one of the decisions that got made at the local middle school was to do away with textbooks because it was cheaper for the school system, right? And so now they had, it was a great idea, right? Online textbooks. There's a problem that straight away some of you have picked up on. In Pleasant Hill neighborhood where I ministered, how many homes do you think had Wi-Fi? You are correct in saying not one. So we might could say, well, here the church can step in. Why don't the church develop a computer lab and help all these kids out? That is a solution and that is something that we thought through. But even bigger than that is why don't we have policymakers who care about these people in the first place? Why don't we recognize the systemic nature of the oppression and sin that is causing generations to not flourish and to suffer and continue to suffer? Why are we not changing it on that end? Yes, we can alleviate the problem locally, but what happens when we, the church, are gone? Who's going to have computer labs then? Who's going to take up the mantle? Why don't we see it change for a long, long time? So we begin to really think through how can we begin to affect things at the policy level. Yes, we did the stopgap measure and we have a computer lab. But we also recognize that wasn't the whole of the story, now was it? Why in the world will a local school system decide to hamstring most of its children? And it also happened at the elementary level. For those of you who know statistics, I don't care what color a child is, if he can't read by the fourth grade, guess where he's going? 94% likely he's going to jail. Colorado and California and Kansas all build their prisons based on whether or not a child can read by the fourth grade because they're going to house them someday. So again, is the solution build bigger prisons? Is this how we love our neighbor? No, the solution is to make sure that our neighbor can read because can a child who can't read be much of a disciple? 
Can a child who can't read enjoy the word of God granted to him or her? No. So to really care about our neighbors to ask some deeper questions. One of the one that's a little lighter, okay, I'll I'll let the pressure off just a little bit. Um, is at the, when I was an elder at New City Church, um, I, was, I was, for whatever reason, I was a guy known, if you were homeless or addicted or whatever issues related in that realm, I, I was the pastor of whatever that was, right? So any questions or issues always came my way, and I was fine with that. And so always there would be, and for those of you who are at KSU, this is not an indictment on you if you've had this thought, by the way. Um, I love you too. Um, but students would often come from Mercer, and they wanted to change the world, and how they wanted to change the world was to serve home homeless people hot dogs. And so, um, yeah, or pizza, which is a little healthier, I think, tomato paste. And so here's the thing I would say to him. I was like, okay, so I I said, I love your heart and I understand you're, you're wanting to change the world and I get it. But are you loving your neighbor who is diabetic and hypertensive by feeding them nitrates and sodium? The response was, well, yeah, we give them dessert too. Okay. You see what I'm saying? I mean, to, to truly love our neighbor is to ask the deeper questions and not just do the things that are satisfying and convenient for us. What I'm trying to say here is too much of what we do in the, in the vein of missionality has more to do with us than it does our neighbor. Because there are some deeper questions that have to be asked in order to create what truly is human flourishing for those that we say we love. Moving on, uh, this, this whole idea of labor of love and steadfastness of hope. So the labor of love is to abide with people even when they're unlovely, to, to continue to abide for as long as God says to abide. How quickly do people come out of their sin most times? It is a crawl, oftentimes. And so are we willing to labor along, continuing, recognizing that there's no gift that we can do without? That there's, there's no requirement. If we give, we're not requiring a certain result. We're letting the Spirit do His work and recognizing that sometimes people are going to fail. But we should do everything we can to grant them the opportunity. And so the Lord has given us so much, we should want to do that. And to do that with a steadfastness of hope. What is hope? Hope is recognizing that Christ continues to equip his church as he sits at the right hand of the Father making intercession. Just as Paul is praying for the Thessalonian church, Christ is interceding even for us this morning. Do you recognize? Does it move you at all that your Savior isn't just sitting there twiddling his thumbs waiting on God to say, now go get him? No, he continues to lean across the throne and say, Father, May you work in their midst. May, may there be fruition and fruit in the power of the Spirit in Christ Community Church even this morning. Even though they can barely stay awake for the time that it would be given to them. And does it also move you at all in the steadfastness of hope that the Spirit is given to you who has access to every single solitary thing you could ever want or need? So the Thessalonian church had grabbed hold of these things and even though they were poor, physically they gave more than they had. And even though they, didn't, even though they were persecuted, they were able to, to do incredible ministry that was known. Listen to what Charles Simeon says about this passage. True faith is active. It brings to the Christian's view the Lord Jesus Christ. I love that he puts that first. 
that, that the active activity of our faith actually helps us to see Jesus more clearly and better. What a wonderful thing that that is the result. It says, as having him in a fullness of all imaginable blessings treasured up for the use of the church. Love is a laborious grace. It is always seeking for something which it may do, either for God or man. I love this. Love cannot endure to be idle. Hope is a patient grace, leading us to expect all that God has promised, however long we have to wait for it. What a, what a, wonderful, what a wonderful thing to be accused of, that we could so wait for God's promises, that we know that they're true, however long it takes for them to come. He goes on to say, and to fulfill all that God has required to the utmost possible extent and to suffer all that God has ordained us to suffer in hope of final recompense and finally to continue in a constant course of well-doing even to the end. It was interesting, I was sharing um, with Wesley at the coffee shop the other day that um, I, I used to wrestle with God about things and still do. Um, but, but for some reason, God likes to confront me in fast food restaurants. I call them fast food epiphanies. And I'm not real sure why there. Maybe it has something to do with my shape. I don't know. Maybe if I chose other places to go, it'd be easier on me in many ways. But I was in a Burger King in, uh, in Atlanta. And it was on uh, Northside Drive. And if you've been in the Burger King on Northside Drive in Atlanta, it's not the nicest Burger King on the planet. And the only reason I was in there is because a guy had given me a bunch of free Whopper meal cards. And so I, it wasn't that I was poor and destitute. I just didn't happen to have any money and I was using these cards. So I went into Burger King and there was only one other person inside. And it was a homeless woman who was sitting next to the door. And she kept, um, she kept looking out the window waiting for someone to come. I could tell by the way she was... She was doing what she was doing that she was waiting for someone to come and also knew no one was coming. And she was folding and unfolding napkins. She'd taken her shoes off. And it was, the, it was just this odd exchange. And as I'm looking at her, I thought to myself, there's no possible way that as a 10-year-old child or an eight-year-old child or a 15-year-old girl that she said, hey, I can't wait to be crazy as all get out sitting in a Burger King waiting for nobody to come someday, folding and unfolding napkins. You've got to know that that wasn't the narrative that she set out for herself and longed for. And the next question I have is, God, why did you let her get here? Well, as God often does, he sent his spirit to answer my question. And the answering of my question meant my heart would be rent in two and God said, why did you let her get here? Because the real issue was, I don't really care about her at all. It's just the fact that it was kind of confronting to my sensibilities to have to sit and watch this woman fold and unfold napkins and wait for somebody to come. It's not that I really cared about her. I cared more about me. And I really wanted God to just fix it and me not to have to get my hands dirty in the process after all. And so now there's two very interesting people in Burger King. There's the white guy who's weeping his eyes out uncontrollably and nobody knows why and the woman folding and unfolding napkins. <laughs> I chose to leave uh, as quickly as possible. Interestingly, a week later, my daughter had a thing in, at, at her kindergarten and um, there's a young girl in that class named Jaslyn. And Jaslyn, I knew to be in foster care. Um, and she come running up to me and she handed me this little... Wow, this picture. 
the picture, I couldn't read what it said. It was a, it was a heart. So I kind of got the gist of it. And the writing was, in just, it didn't, I couldn't read it. I said, Jasmine, sweetheart, what does this say? She says, it says, I love you. And the spirit rent me into again. And he said, if you don't care what happens to this little girl, if you don't rise up and participate in what will change what is happening for her, she someday will sit in a Burger King folding and unfolding napkins, not flourishing. What are you prepared to do? And so, so often when it comes to the, uh, these things about being missional, we want God to just take care of it all, right? Just wave his little magic wand and do his little magic thing and, oh, shoot, we'll give to it. We'll throw a check at it maybe, but do we really want to step into the middle of the darkness and carry the light that we have unbusheled? And here we have this incredible example of the Thessalonian church that just didn't even have much to give. It was under severe persecution and yet she rose and shined gloriously. Such that Paul said, man, the work of your faith, the labor of your love and the steadfastness of your hope, it is, it is glorious. It is this beautiful thing that causes us to pray for you all the time. So, is faith, love, and hope visible and tangible in your life and in the life of Christ Community Church? Is this what we could be accused for? Could this be said of us? And if not, why? And how are we going to get there? Do we get there by trying harder? No. We get there by taking seriously the gospel and worshiping in such a way that we actually believe that it's true. And by thinking through and asking the question, Lord, where would you have me to serve? What would you have me to do? And do all that he says and all that he puts our hand to. Whether it's out of darkness or the crisis pregnancy center or the extension or wherever it may be. It could be that you just love your neighbor that's going through a very difficult time in their marriage. And you're willing to come alongside them and just love them. Or maybe you go and you're, you're, just, you're, you're good to a neighbor that you know has had a miscarriage. Or you love on a community of people that you know are being systematically oppressed for one reason or another. Maybe it's because they're immigrants of some kind. Or maybe it's because of the color of their skin. Or maybe it's because of any of the things for which we choose to keep others down and away and out of sight. Marginalized. Now let's look at what Paul has to say beginning in verse four. He says, for we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God. I love that. I love that he says, that we, we know that you are loved by God and that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in the power, also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. What is he saying there? He's saying, we can clearly see that you are loved of God by how you live your lives. We can clearly see that God's gracious, electing generosity has fallen upon you because of not just the words that are coming out of your mouth, but the power of the Holy Spirit that is emanating forth from you as evidenced in the work of your faith, the labor of your love, and the steadfastness of your hope. There's clear evidence as to who they are that gives Paul great confidence in saying what he's saying. He goes on to say, you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. So they're saying, we clearly also evidence these same things among you, worthy of your imitation. He goes on, verse six, and you became imitators of us 
and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So he's saying that they are imitating Jesus Christ himself, which takes us back to 1 John 3, doesn't he? He laid down his life and so too ought we in ways that actually brings the grace of the gospel and human flourishing. So too should we seek to do in word and in deed to be the hands and the feet of God himself, to be the church that Christ died for and rose such that we could have life and life more abundant than we could ever have apart from him. So often when I hear people say, you know, I just, I don't experience God very much. I just, I, my faith, I, it's just nothing's going on. I often want to say, well, what are you, what are you doing? Like, where, where, where are you going? Where are you standing such that your faith could be tested? Where are you even going that it would be evident that God was at work and shining forth? Isaiah 58 and Matthew 25 are incredibly instructive in this, and we don't have time to look at those. And in fact, I would encourage you to maybe study them devotionally this week. Isaiah 58 and Matthew 25 clearly say that if you want to see me, if God says, you want to see me, I'll tell you where I am. I'm amongst the broken and the marginalized. I'm amongst those who are hurting and suffering apart from the grace of the gospel. Does that mean we can only help uh, poor people? Are, are rich folks not some of the most marginalized people on the planet? Who don't, uh, in fact, I was um, actually befriended Rondell White. If any of you know who Rondell White is, he was a baseball player from Jones County. He played for the Yankees and the Padres and um, career was cut short by injuries, but often would hit 290, 300, was a tremendous baseball player. Played for the Yankees as well. And, and Rondell, uh, we were treating him for his finger. He had uh, gotten a finger injury. And um, I was a physical therapist at one time. And he said to me, he said, you know, man, I said, I make $6 million a year and I'm probably one of the loneliest men you'll ever know. He said, because here's the problem. I don't know if people are hanging out with Ronnie or Rondell who picks up the tap. Now you may say, well, I'd love to try that problem on for size. I bet I could figure it out. But that's not the point of the story now, is it? The point of the story is here, Rondell was honestly confessing that he had access to every single, and it was interesting, we got to share the gospel with Ronnie. And uh, he really began to respond. A friend of mine and I, Diana and I, would share the gospel with him, and it really began to take root in Rondell. And so um, it's just an amazing thing to see that, yes, you can have it all and still be just as marginalized, just as cut off, just as not flourishing as one who has little to nothing. Because remember, is the Thessalonian church a rich church? No, these folks barely had anything. And yet they, they were doing tremendous things. Paul goes on to say, verse 7, So that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. That basically covers the whole of the, the empire. Achaia would have uh, Corinth. It was one of the main churches that was in Achaia. And we've talked about the churches that are in Macedonia. So it would cover basically the churches that Paul planted in his second missionary journey. And it was a large, large area. So here the Thessalonian church had this tremendous example. They, they weren't even sending missionaries to these places. Their example was going forth because people were talking about what amazing things this church was doing. Now, Thessalonica was a thoroughfare. Try saying that three times. It was a thoroughfare through which a lot of folks came. And whenever they would encounter the people of the church, it had so affected them that they carried their example throughout the whole of the empire. And remember, where are we? 
Cobb County is, um, it, it can be incredibly transient. Folks come and go. This is a huge thoroughfare for us in a sense. And so what will people carry forth about us? And is that the point? Should we <coughs> care about what gets said about us on the internet? Should we care about what it is that people are saying? No, that's not the point. The point is to live in such a way that you, we get to be, be, be able to serve as an example that would be encouraging to other people that would actually have an impact for God's great glory. And so we want to be both imitators of who Paul is and who Christ is and, and who all of the, the, the apostles were and all the writers of the scriptures. We want to imitate those things. We want to imitate what Christ has done. And you can't do that if you don't study it. You can't know what you're doing or not doing if you're not engaging it, right? And so I'm going to quote, actually, Sam Larson here again from his book, Grip by a Global God. Listen to what he says. This is, this is a, a brilliant quote. It says, God has chosen us in Christ not simply for our own blessedness, but also for the purpose of being his instruments of blessings to others. The Christian life is fundamentally a life for others. To be in Christ is to be with him in God's mission in the world. It is for us to both imitate and exemplify all throughout the empire. So what evidence is there in your life of whose you are and what you're about? What are you imitating? Like if I were to spend the day with you, what would I, what would I come away with? Who do you look most like? Do you look most like Walter White from Breaking Bad? Somebody got that reference, and thank you. Do you, <laughs> do you look most like Homer Simpson? Just goofy and barely making it through. Who do you look most like? Do you look most like Christ or Paul? Who do you, who do you imitate? Who, would, who do you exemplify? Now, that's a tough question, isn't it? Let's be fair. That was rude of me to do in the middle of a sermon. But it's still a biblical question, isn't it? And woe be unto us if we don't care to ask the deeper questions such that we would have life more abundant so that we could have our faith and our hope and our love shine forth in such a way that it changes things. Let's finish out here. Verses eight through 10 say this. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. He's saying your word is the witness and the testimony. We don't even have to go back and clean it up. We don't have to make exceptions for you. We don't have to explain what it is you're doing because it's clear to all. Amen? What a terrible thing that we have to make. How many times have you heard somebody do this? Yeah, yeah, I know that church is doing great things, but... And they have to make all these exceptions, right? And we have to clean it up, right? So Paul's saying, we don't have to clean up anything you guys are doing. You got it. You're doing amazing things and it's sounding forth. Well, I love that verb, just to sound forth in the empire. He goes on to say, for they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. What is he saying there? He's saying that the gospel took root in you all and changed you and became evident. So can we be missional if we are not first Christians? I mean, shouldn't we just do, the, let's just do the social justice and not ask all these hard questions. Let's just be nice to people, right? Random acts of kindness. Isn't that enough, Cameron? No, you must first turn from your own idols. 
And sometimes the place where you will find your idols most cleaned up and set firmly out for all to see is in this question of whether or not you'll be missional. You want to get exposed, start asking these questions. It will fling wide that idol-making factory known as your heart which is why we don't like asking these questions, which is why we don't do these sermons, but every so often, because you would die. <laughs> and so, but it's an important thing for us to do, isn't it? That we recognize that first we must confess that we are sinners in desperate need of God's grace before we can help anybody else. Before we, unless we know our own dependency upon Christ alone, through faith alone, by grace alone, we got nothing to offer or give. There's nothing for us to be missional about if we're not Christians first. We talked about this this morning in the church membership class. There's nothing for you to join if you're here if you're not a Christian. Why would you join something for which you don't believe in the head? Right? So Paul recognizes they've responded to the gospel. He says, and to wait for the son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. And he's saying, you guys have grounded everything that you are and all that you do in the hope of the return of Christ because you know that he has promised and it is good and it is worthy of you to wait for between the now and the not yet. But do they wait idle? No, they're at work being missional. So what does that mean for us? How are we to apply this? Um, the first thing I want to I read this quote from John Stott, because this is really important that we keep things in order. John Stott says, the highest of all missionary motives is neither obedience to the Great Commission, important as that is, nor love for sinners who are alien, alienated and perishing, strong as that incentive is, especially when we contemplate the wrath of God, but rather zeal, a burning and passionate zeal for the glory of Jesus Christ. Before this supreme goal of the Christian mission, all unworthy motives wither and die. For us to be missional is for us to want and desire for God to be glorified and for Christ's gospel to go forth. If what we want is for others to know that we are great, we're off. If what we want is for others to invite us to conferences so we can talk about how amazingly we figured out how to be missional with less, we're off. If what we want is for my ministry to just blow up because I'm the guru and all of these things, I get to write books and I get to do videos such that I'm only preaching here maybe 10 Sundays a month because I'm so famous, I'm blowing up, right? Is that the goal? Maybe you only want me to preach 10 Sundays a month, but that's not the reason, that's not the why. And so we, we should not, any other motive other than God's fame and Jesus's glory such that the gospel would take root, it withers and it dies. We won't continue in doing it. For if we have any other motives, we're in trouble. This is why missional has to come rightly within the construct of knowing that God has first been generous and Jesus was missional first and that our whole point in doing it is to, is to grow the kingdom, more sons and daughters at the table. So for us, what does this mean? What does this mean for those of you who, who are stay-at-home moms? How in the world can a stay We got a whole bunch of them in here. How in the world does a stay-at-home mom be missional? Especially if she has four kids under the age of six or five or whatever the denominations are that you have. Well, the first way you be missional is worship. Make sure you keep continuing to worship, though there's the tyranny of the urgent always <laughs> gnashing its teeth at your door. And the second thing is to raise your children in the admonition of the Lord. What greater mission could there be? If you somehow manage to save um, Uganda, but yet your children don't ever know the Lord, what good have you done? 
How about those of you who maybe work in a circumstance where you hardly ever deal with people? Maybe you do data entry or maybe you do actuarial sciences or maybe you do something where you're just staring at numbers. Maybe you're a CPA. Do you eat lunch? Do they not, are you chained to the desk and you don't get to eat lunch? Or there, is there any person that you could maybe be intentional at least maybe once a month about sitting down and going to lunch with them and sharing your faith? That doesn't take a whole lot, now does it? For those of you who are in business, own your own business, or you function within business in the community, what's the greatest indictment against, against Christians? What happens when somebody gets a business card that has an ichthus fish on it or a cross? Want to deal with that person? Now, that's not for everyone, but unfortunately, it's all too often the case that Christian business owners do dirty business. They cut corners and do things they shouldn't do. So for those of you who are Christian business owners, you want to be missional, do good business. Maybe you have the opportunity to hire somebody who would never get a chance to get a job. Maybe you think through those kinds of things. You take some chances that way. Maybe you just make sure that what you're doing is engaging in the flourishing of others. What do you do if you're a student and you hadn't quite figured out what it is you want to do in this world? You eat lunch too. You eat dinner. You do all kinds of things. Might you be intentional about making sure that once in a while, at least maybe once a month, you're engaging someone who doesn't believe like you and needs to witness your faith, your hope, and your love? It's true for all of us, isn't it? That we should seek one area in which we could live missionally. So my question to you is how can we, the church, help you in that? Now, if there's, you're trying to think through your job, your situation, how in the world you could be missional, and you just can't quite figure it out, talk to us. We're very creative, and if we don't know, we know people who do know, and we can help you kind of figure out what does that look like. I don't want you to be shackled by this idea. I don't want you to be overwhelmed by this idea. I want you to be set free. Such that being missional will be a huge blessing to you, as it was for the Thessalonian church. All right, let me close in prayer. We'll just do one song. I, I knew I was going to run long. I'm sorry. Um, but I, I do want you to know I, I love you. And I do want to see you flourishing in the gospel, which means if you're flourishing in the gospel, others are going to flourish in the gospel around you. And I don't want us, the church, to dictate and limit your creativity and the few little programs that we could offer. I want you, because you live in all kinds of different places, you work in all kinds of different places that I'm never going to get to go. I want you to be able to function in those realms in such a way that the light's beginning to spread. And I do want them to talk good about our church, and I say that very humbly. What an incredible thing that I could hear someday back from someone about something you all have done as a representative of not only Christ Community Church, but of Christ himself. About how you so beautifully exemplified your faith, hope, and love. I would cherish that. It would mean I was actually doing what I was called to do, probably. And remember, this ain't about me. It really is about you. The one place where we get to say that in good conscience. Let me pray.